If you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5, we're going to be taking a look at Proverbs 5 and what the Lord has to say to us from that passage. Um, as we're going to be looking at it, I, I do want to let you know that Solomon is going to be giving us the talk, okay? He's giving us the purity talk. He's going to be sitting down with his son as he's penning these words. He's giving his son an understanding of what purity is all about. Now, I don't know about you, but for those of you that have children, uh, that kind of talk can be a little awkward at times. Now, I know for my own family, well, Lee and I have kind of wrestled, had wrestled through this as our kids were growing up, and we wanted to help them understand what, the, what God said about sexual intimacy. And we wanted to beat what the school was teaching and what the kids were going to talk about. And so as a result of that, we took time and prayed through and, and sought God's uh, his favor in helping us to have wisdom how to navigate through these very tender waters. And so for each of our kids, they had different responses as we talked with them. My wife took Sarah away for a, a ladies' retreat, uh, just mother-daughter overnight. And so they talked about all kinds of things in life and had great discussions. And then they kind of bridged into talking about a husband-wife relationship and what God has created in, in a pure way for us to be able, moms and dads, to express themselves to each other. And, of course, Sarah, after she heard that, she's like, I, I, I know, I know. Okay, Mom. Okay, we're done. We're done with this topic. So that was Sarah. And then Joshua was somewhat the same way. We had picked out a James Dobson book that kind of walked through it was, uh, several chapters. And we took a few days to be able to kind of figure this out and you know walk through this with Josh and when we got to the punchline of of how God has created intimacy in the relationship he kind of got this little smirk on his face and he's like okay I'm I, I have no questions you have any questions no no let's move on from this topic my youngest son we figured he would probably have the same reaction as the first two not a whole lot of questions kind of passive but my youngest son had more of a violent reaction we went through the different chapters several days and then finally i got to the uh, you know the idea that what god has created for moms and dads to be able to have babies and things like that and it was as if a light switch was turned on in his mind and he didn't like what he realized for the very first time in his life and all of a sudden, he started contorting his face and started squirming around like, no, no, I can't believe that's what God's plan is. Of course, uh, I think now as a married young man, he understands that that's not a bad thing at all. But that was his response to that. You know, as we look at the Word of God in terms of what he has to say to us, our response should be one of this is beautiful what God has created. And the intelligence of God in creating intimacy in a relationship is so incredible. It's so brilliant that God would give us something that's so pure, so beautiful. And yet we know that evil is in the world and it has a way of taking what God has designed for purity 
and has, designed, has taken it and made it something it shouldn't be. So as we're going to look at chapter 5 today, just know that chapter 5, 6, and 7, Solomon's having that talk with his son. He's helping him understand. Now, we're not going to expound on everything in regards to sexual intimacy in, in all those chapters. You're going to have to read a portion of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 yourself. But know this, he has both a positive and a negative message. There's a negative message in dealing with the reality that there is evil in the world that will take and will distort and pervert everything that God has designed. And so he will address the adulterous woman or the adulterous uh, relationship. And so he's going to deal with that very frankly. He's going to deal with sexual temptation, but he will also deal with the purity of the relationship. And so today we're going to see a little bit of both. We're going to see how he deals, first of all, with the, the negative message that they needed to have, that his son needed to have, that we still need to have, the warning that he gives them. And then we're going to, after we hear the warning, we're going to take time to reflect about our own life and for us to have a time of communion together. And then we're going to come back and we're going to celebrate the purity of the relationship that God intends for a, a man and a woman to have. And I'm going to ask my wife to come help me make some applications at that time. So she's going to be very brave in what I've asked her to do today. But I am so thankful for a wife that God has given me for 28 years. And I am so thankful for the kind of relationship that we have. And I'm excited that we can talk about those things together. But let's take a look in chapter 5 at the warning, first of all. Here's the negative side. He starts off and he says, My son, chapter 5, verse 1, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ears to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman, and then he's going to talk about the forbidden woman. Now, please understand Solomon's emphasis to his son. He says, be attentive to my wisdom. Let your ears listen. Incline your ears. Listen to my understanding that you may keep discretion, that you might have knowledge, that you might be able to formulate a plan. Now, at first look, you'd say, man, Solomon is kind of a, a little cocky here because he's saying, man, this is my wisdom. This is my understanding. Well, you need to understand that God had given it to him as a gift. The one thing that Solomon wanted when he became king was that he would have wisdom in, in, in how to rule. And during the golden years of his rule, he wrote over 300 proverbs. Kings came from all over the place just to sit at Solomon's feet and to hear the words that came out of his mouth. Now, the words that came out of his mouth, it wasn't from Solomon. It was a gift from God. It was God's wisdom. So the very wisdom that Solomon Solomon that we're studying right now is going to be beneficial to us because it's the wisdom of God. Now, that's why Solomon could, stand, uh, could write this and give a warning to his son. Listen to what I have to say. Now, I, some of you might look at Solomon's life and say, well, didn't that guy kind of have some deep moral problems himself? Yes, he did. 
He did, but that doesn't diminish the fact that he still received wisdom from God that we need to heed. Now, if Solomon would have followed the, his own wisdom that God, had, that God had given him, he would have ended his life with an incredible legacy, an incredible legacy. But 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 4 says that his heart went after many foreign women. In fact, the passage says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's impossible. I don't know how any man could do that. But that's what Solomon's problem was. And great, the greater problem was that his heart went after the foreign gods of these foreign women. Now, do we take this and learn from it? Absolutely. What Solomon is saying here is, son, you got to listen. You got to pay attention. You got to develop a plan. Here's the important point. If we don't develop a plan for applying wisdom in terms of our sexuality or in regards to our morality, then we will naturally go with the flow of the world. We will do what everybody else does in the world. But we as Christ followers, we as believers of God, we need to have a plan, and this is what he is saying. I want you to be smart. I want you to think about this. We know statistically that nobody in the body of Christ is exempt from sexual temptation. We know that. We know that full well. And so we need to heed what he has to say. So Solomon says, first of all, there's an appearance that's false. There's an appearance here, son, I want you to know. Sin is always going to decorate itself. It's always going to look good. It's always going to be appealing. Take a look at verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. So he gives two analogies, that of honey and that of oil, to show the, the, the beauty of the forbidden woman. The forbidden woman is always going to look good. Honey was a precious substance. It was the sweetest substance. And in this is the lie that you have to have something because it's so sweet. I just got to have it. But also there is flattery that's involved with it. Speech that is smoother than oil. What this is showing us is that oil depicts the tool by which deception happens, namely through words. See, words are the things that persuade, that seduce, that lure. Words are those things that convince. It's what we use to rationalize our behaviors. Words are always going to be accompanied with this seductive woman. And he is saying, no, no, no. Understand the deception of this sin. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6, and he rips the, the, the mask right off of this, and he helps us to see the ugliness of sin. And notice what he says to his son in verse 4. He says this, But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path of Tushil, which is the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, back up to verse 4. He says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. He gives two more word pictures of the reality of sin. First one is wormwood. 
Wormwood was something that was a bitter substance in ancient times. And if you ate this wormwood, it left a lasting, bitter, nasty taste in your mouth. And the analogy that he is giving is that sexual sin, when you give into it, it will maybe taste good at first, but it will leave a nasty presence in your life and it will create bitterness. It will create bitter, bitterness in relationships. It will cause bitterness between a husband and a wife, between children and their parents. It will create that. The other thing it'll do is it will cut. It's like a two-edged sword. In that day, there was nothing, nothing that could do more damage. They didn't have guns. They had swords and a two-edged sword cut going one way and the other way as well. And he's saying that this sword will cause division within your relationships. It will cause you to be damaged in your relationship with God and with other people. In verses 5 and 6, we're told that adultery would lead down a path of death that would take you far from life. And we know that sexual sins can do that. It could actually physically hurt us through disease. But it could also hinder our relationships and hurt our relationships. And then Solomon says, here's the loss. Here's all the losses. He moves on in verses 7 through 14, and he says, son, here's all the losses that you will face if you go down this path. Take a look at verse 7. And now, O son, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you, here's cost number one, the loss number one he would face is this, you give your honor to another. Loss number two, you give your years to the merciless. Cost number three, lest strangers take their fill of your strength. Cost number four, your labor go to the house of a foreigner. Cost number five, and at the end of your life, you groan. Cost number five, when your f flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hate discipline and my heart despises reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teacher or incline my ear to my instructor. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly, the assembled congregation. He basically shows that there is a cost associated with sexual sin. It will cost you honor. It will cost you a quality of life. It will cost you your strength. It will cost you your money. It will cost you lasting satisfaction. It will cost you your health. Now, as we think about this today, we know that this is all true. All we have to do is look around us and we see that. We have seen more than one public figure lose their honor due to adultery. I mentioned names like President Clinton. He dragged the name of the presidency through the mud because of an adulterous affair. We know the name General David Petraeus was in the news not too long ago. Years ago, Ted Haggard, who was part of the National Evangelical Association, was caught in adultery. We see that quality of life affects us because we see that families are divided. We see that sin saps the strength from us. It will always cost 
people the, that participate in it more than they want to pay. It will cost them money in legal fees, divorce fees, settlement fees, cost of covering up the sin, the cost of the sin itself. Sin, sexual sin robs us of enduring satisfaction. Yes, it is like a thrill ride that promises you this great excitement, but at the end, you're dizzy and you feel like vomiting because it ends up always bad. It ends with deep regrets. It affects our health. What Solomon is saying is that sexual sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. This is the message that Solomon was giving his son and this is the message that he gives us today. Now, the question that we need to ask is, what is our life? What is our life about? Yes, it's true that it's possible that there are some here that there, you, you think that nobody knows what's going on in, in your life, and that might be true. You've been concealing it. But there's one person that knows for certain everything that's going on, and that's God himself. You can't hide it from him. He knows what's going on in private. And so that's some people, that's exactly where you're at. But I'm thankful that there are some people that today, this is simply a reminder. This is a reminder of where you don't want to go. This is a reminder of maybe the way you were in the past, but you're forgiven. You're cleansed. This is no longer the way that you are, and you can rejoice in that. That's my hope. My hope is not to camp out in the sin and the destruction of that sin, but my hope is that every single person can move from that place to a place where they are redeemed, they are forgiven, they are cleansed, because every one of us have some part of a tainted past in our hearts, if it's only in our hearts or in our actions. And as we go to a time of communion, I find it very appropriate that we should celebrate, celebrate redemption. And so here's the application. The Apostle Paul, as he was writing in Corinthians, after he listed all kinds of sexual sins, he said this. And he says, and that is what some of you were. Today we're going to celebrate the were. We're going to celebrate that this is past and that this next statement is true. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so when we take communion, communion is simply a reminder. It's a picture. And when we take the bread, Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body that was broken for you. This is how you get redemption, is through the body of Christ. And when you take the cup, it is a reminder, because Jesus said to his disciples, this is a reminder of, the, of, of my blood that was shed for you, a cup of the new covenant. And this is what God wants us to do as we take communion, is to remember Remember what God has done in our life. But here's the one thing I want you to think about. If there is unconfessed sin as a believer in Christ, confess it to God. Ask him for cleansing. Say, God, come, come cleanse this heart of mine. Forgive me for the things that I've done wrong. And what 1 John 1, 9 says is that he delights in giving cleansing. 
He delights in giving forgiveness. He doesn't want us to stay in our sin. He wants to help us through. He wants to get us to a place where our marriages are whole. He wants us to get us to a place where our relationships are based on trust and truth. He wants that. So remember that. Confess that in the time that the communion plate is being passed. Now, if you don't know Christ, just observe. If you really haven't come to that place of yielding to him, then just observe what takes place. But at this point, I'm going to have the plate and the cup be passed, and I will give you instruction as to when to eat. Personally, I'm glad for the uh, second part of this message because Solomon does give some good news in regards to marriage, and he basically shows what marriage should be, that there should be a joy of pure love that is expressed in a marriage relationship. Now, I realize that in this room we have people that are married and some that are not, but no matter what, I think we can all agree that God wants strong marriages and we want to pray for that. And so I think this is great instruction that God is giving us. And I'm breaking this, uh, the, 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 the joy of this love into two parts. The first part is just looking at the joy of having one spouse and having a singularity in our thinking towards that spouse and the intimacy that we can have. So it says in verse 15, take a look at what he says in chapter 5. He says, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should, you, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Implying no. Let them be for you, yours alone and not for strangers with you. Now, at this time, Water was an incredible commodity that everybody longed for in the ancient times. It wasn't like us going and just turning on the tap water and getting a cup of cold water. No, it was they had to have a well. They had to dig a well. They had to have a spring. And when they had that, they, he's basically saying cherish it. Now he's using the idea of having your own well with relating it with the marriage relationship. And so Solomon's message is basically there has to be a singularity of thinking in terms of marriage, that you have one man and one woman, they go together, they make a commitment, and they are to stay together, and they are to be bound together, and that what will bind them is the intimate relationship that they have with one another. Now, what's implied here very, very explicitly is that sexual intimacy is a strong bond in the marriage. I believe the reason that is so is because there is a spiritual and a physical element to intimacy. The spiritual and physical is seen all the way back at the first marriage. Remember when God married Adam and Eve and he says, now you... Uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be united as, with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He is describing both a physical act and a spiritual act. This is why later on in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, in correcting sexual immorality, because some Corinthians 
were going and having intimate relationships with temple prostitutes, Paul says, no, you can't do that. You can't have that mindset. That is absolutely wrong. He says, well, you are to flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that man commits is outside the body, but the one who sins sexually, you sin against your own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. There is a spiritual element of God living within us when we gave our life to him. And so he is saying, whatever you do in this body, it involves God. And so there is to be a spiritual bond and a spiritual purity in that relationship. And that is something that is something that you can enjoy with one spouse and having that intimacy together. Now, I've asked my wife to come up here because I have trust, I've learned to trust over the years the wisdom that God has given this woman here. That God has had to give her some incredible wisdom to last being married to me for 28 years. But I'm going to ask you, honey, how does a couple keep that fresh, that love fresh and vibrant in, in their relationship? Um, I pick three, three areas, and that is to be committed, to be intentional, and to be creative. Um, being committed is 100%. It's not 50-50. It's not, well, I'll do this if you do that, or I'm not going to do this because you didn't do that. Um, I think back to an article that Chuck Swindoll wrote, and it talks about life. And it said life is 10% our circumstance and 90% our attitude. And I think there's plenty of times in our marriage, um, in marriage general, that a lot of times we just need an attitude adjustment. Um, so I think to take 100% Mostly you, it. right? <laughs> Mostly me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's what um, I thought. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the second one would be to be intentional. Um, I think we're intentional in a lot of ways. We're intentional with our kids. We're intentional at times when we're not happy with our appearance and we, you know, get specific about how we're going to exercise or how we're going to eat or how, what we're going to wear. Um, in our dating, we were very intentional, um, what we're going to wear, where we're going to go, how we communicate. And I think as time goes on and life takes over, we get into a rut, we get into a routine. And I think we need to be intentional in our relationship in those areas. I think creativity is huge. Um, I get the awesome privilege of your creativity and benefiting from that. And I think back over the years when we first got married, we had like zero money to spend outside of bills and we had three kids under the age of four. And it was like, how do you get creative? How do you get time alone? And we had a really good friends that had a family with the same age kids and we swapped kids. Sometimes it was for an hour and we would just go home or we would take a walk around the block or we would um, get a couple hours and we'd go to McDonald's and share a fry. You know, it, it was so simple sometimes. Maybe it was packing a picnic lunch and going to the park. Um, it, it, it was just being creative in that time of our life and what that had to look like. Um, at 25 years of marriage, Steve came up with this idea of um, doing 25 things that we had never done together in the course of the week leading up to our anniversary. And so outside of just a few things, we pretty much did those 25 things in, in that week. And that took some thought, that took creativity from um, borrowing a friend's Corvette and, or a convertible and going out um, for dinner, that was new. We went and hiked a park we had never hiked before. 
And um, we got really desperate, and we walked a quarter of a mile backwards in our allotment. That was one of our brighter moments. That was, yeah. you know, we need one more thing. <laughs> our neighbors are still scared. They're like, what are you doing? We're like, oh, well, there's a couple that back. walks backwards. Yeah, we, that was, was, wasn't easy. Um, anyway, so I think it's just being creative. Okay. I'm going to go on in our passage. The passage goes on and tells us that there should be a joy of cherishing and the joy of being satisfied. Look at what it says in verse 18. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all time with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, I think, once again, obviously, Solomon is very uh, descriptive in describing the sexual nature of the marriage relationship. But the message here is that a cherishing marriage will lead to a satisfying marriage. So look at the cherishing verse in, ver in, in verse 18. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, the fact is, men and women are growing older, and we're not growing younger. And I think what Solomon is doing is he's giving us old people a reference point to go back to of what our marriage should be. Remember when you were young and in love. Remember when you couldn't stand to be apart from each other. Remember when your spouse was the most important person in your life and that you desired to build that person up and support that person. Remember when you just enjoyed the long embrace and caressing each other. Remember all these things. And he says this, this cherishing is kind of the reset button. The rejoicing in the wife of your youth, going back to that, is so vitally, vitally important. But he also says that there should be a long-term satisfaction. He says, let her breast fill you at all time with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now, it's interesting the difference between a man and a woman. A man reads that verse and he sees the word breast and intoxicated, but the, a woman reads this and sees you at all times, always. And to be honest, both are, are important. Is that God has given us a physical intimacy for us to be together as a bond. First Corinthians says it's a way that we can serve our spouse. My job is to fulfill my wife and then my wife to me. And so there's that servanthood that we're to have with each other. But the emphasis is at all times. Friends, this is, this is the marathon. This is the long-lasting aspect that he has designed marriage to be. So here's my question for you. Now that you're getting to be an old woman, um, do you see how love is changing or, or how should love change and how should it stay the same? I'm not 50 yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would I, I picked the word for staying the same and to me it means how do I keep our how do we keep our relationship grounded and to keep it grounded um, there has to be a um, a growing relationship with God and with each other I think that's first and foremost um, secondly I guess in regards to change I think life changes um, you know uh, it there's different phases of life that we go through and I think through those changes sometimes um, it can be entering the whole parenting scene. It can be um, a, a career change. It could be um, an illness that comes into the family. Um, it could be aging parents, or it could, you know, 
at some point be hormone replacements. I mean, it, it, every phase of life changes. And sometimes we look at those and we say, you know, this is an obstacle. And you know what? It's just the way I am right now. It's just what I'm going through. It's just the way life is, so deal with it. And I, I think sometimes that's such a wrong approach because um, it, we need to look at them not as obstacles but as opportunities, opportunities to grow together, to say, you know what, this is something we need to work through together. Um, it's, we, need to make, we need to come up with some new ways of addressing this time in our life. We need to make them fresh. Otherwise, it gets very boring. It gets very stagnant, and I think that leads to trouble down the road. Yeah, and I think sometimes, uh, if I could add, is that sometimes, especially at midlife, that some all of a sudden the guy is trying to get his physique back, he's trying to get something back, <clears throat> or she's trying to have the career he, she never had because she was raising the kids, and you start to see people start to gravitate apart. And that's the wrong approach. God says that there's a permanency in this intimacy and this satisfaction that you should have with each other. You have to adapt to the changes that you go through. And men, this leads to patience on our part. We have to have that in a greater sensitivity as we each go through different changes in, in our life. Let me ask you one more question. What words of encouragement would you have for those that feel maybe like the fire is going out in their relationship? Maybe they have become stagnant uh, in their relationship. What, what would you say is so important in, in regards to, to be able to have a satisfying relationship again? Um, I think I would ask the question of what, where are you personally um, in regards to um, what, what satisfies you, what gets your time, what gets your attention, um, is, you know, where, where, do your, where do your thoughts go, what, what activities are you involved in, what um, entertainment do you um, participate in? Are you talking about things that we tend to replace our spouse Yeah, with? like what, what is going on <clears throat> in your life? that may be replacing your time together or even your interest in your spouse. Um, and then, you know, evaluating that. Uh, it could be hobbies. It could be um, your entertainment. It could be social media. Um, it doesn't always have to be negative. It could just be a job that's over-consuming your time um, or kids that are over-consuming, you know, at the, at the place in life that you're at. But I think there's an evaluation period where you both sit down and, and figure that out and then um, get creative and get intentional on on moving forward. I think the second one too, which is probably the most important is where's your walk with the Lord because they're so connected. And often when my time with God is um, not where it should be, I see that other areas of my life become affected by that, whether it be my attitude or whether it be my laziness or whether it, it just be um, a complacency. Um, and so my question would be you know, to look at where you are with your walk with the Lord. If you could give just a couple things that would be practical to do things, what, what would you say? Um, one is to pray together. There's a resource that I've used um, several times that I personally really like, and it's a book called um, the, the Praying Wife or The Praying Husband. It's by um, Stormy Ockmartin, Ock I think it is. Yeah. And um, I've used that, and I love that. That's an awesome resource on how to pray daily for your spouse-specific areas and gives you a time frame in areas that you might not even think about. So that, that's one resource. And I think just dating in general. Um, we just learned about a, a website, um, the datingdivas.com, and I pulled it up and just briefly looked at it. I think it's a great resource. I'm looking forward to um, 
using it a little bit more. Yeah. It's vitally important <clears throat> that we work on our relationships uh, in, at Mission View, and I think it's important for us to see how, how vital it is that we work at these things. Um, Solomon concludes with this. He says in verse 20, he asked his son a question. He says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and brace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's <clears throat> ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquity of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. He's basically saying, son, why would you do this? Why would you ever go this route when there's <laughs> God's pure love that he wants you to experience? And he's basically saying, God's going to hold us accountable. And there is a reality here that I think each of us need to remember is that God will hold us accountable. I think as we have gone through Proverbs, we've learned so many rich truths. Last week, we talked about how Solomon was saying for his son, I want you to have a platform, a platform of influence around you. You have to show, you have to show the stability in your own life and that leads to you having a platform of influence. I think there is no greater way than for us to have a platform of influence in our community than by having strong marriages. Uh, there is nothing more damaging in a church than sexual sin that goes unaddressed. But then there is nothing more powerful than a church that demonstrates grace in their marriages and we continue to grow and hold each other accountable today uh, or to, to having strong marriages. I realize today there are those that are single. I realize there are those that may be divorced or going through a divorce. But I also know that you would be the very ones that would stand up and say, yes, these things must be addressed. These things must, we must give attention here because I've learned from my own experience. As Mitch comes out and closes us, what I want to challenge us to do is I want you to, if you're married, I want you to take the hand of your spouse. And I'm going to ask that as he's singing this song, this song is really about struggle. It's about the struggle in life that people have. And we kind of get into that rut. And what it's saying is that we're not going to do that, that we're not going to be satisfied with just being complacent. And so I want you to think about the two applications that we're giving today, that you would pray for your spouse and that you would aggressively and creatively spend time dating each other. I don't care if you've been married 100 years. Continue to date. I know that's not that's hyperbole, but you've you got to continue in working on our relationships. We cannot just coast. Lord, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. I thank you for the brilliance of marriage. I thank you that it was your design. I thank you for the brilliance of pure love and intimacy that can be experienced by two people. And Lord, may our testimony be your testimony of what a redeemed life will do and how it will have moms and dads that love each other that will raise their kids that will train them in how to love you and to have godly relationships and so Lord I pray that you would take us that you would help us where we're at 
and help us to have the kind of marriages that we need to have. In Christ's name.